0: Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. You may have heard this saying before major on the majors and minor on the minors. Paul lived this. Executive Director of Family Transformation Jimmy Kim continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled God's Prevailing Mission, which covers Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 36. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at
1: Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him.
2: Amen. Thank you, Davon. Let's together read uh, and pray our prayer of illumination. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Would that be true of God's word today? I don't know about you, but uh, there have been many times as I've grown older where I have noticed my forgetfulness. Uh, And this is not a note that my wife or my kids have written for me, that's a self-confession. I confess, I am very prone to forget. And maybe you've been in this situation before where you have found yourself in a place and you thought, why am I in this place? I had a reason for coming here, be it the kitchen, be it the basement, be it the garage, sitting in the car maybe. It doesn't even require physical movement to a place. I can just do the act of standing up from my chair and think, why did I stand up? I've already forgotten. This can happen even in front of a computer screen, right? Reading a website, reading an article, something. You're watching a video and you open up a tab, Command T, Control T. Why did I open up that new tab? I don't remember anymore. I think this is why Google, the engineers over there, pre-fill in your Google search for you. Did you mean this? Why, yes I did, because I've already forgotten. Now I had the thought, because of this forgetfulness, how important it is then for me to start writing things down, right? And maybe you've gone through this before, maybe you're in in the thick of it right now, right? And you begin, ah, that's a good thought, I should write this down. Let me get my pen, get my book, and I'll write it into my notebook. But for me, a lot of times those thoughts, what happen? it's like it's a picture, like in Back to the Future, where the picture begins to fade and you're writing frantically to try to remember what it is that you're writing down. I can't remember, I gotta remember, I gotta write this down, oh, and I've lost it. What a nice pen, wow. How about that? What was I writing again? Forgetfulness, we're all there. You can imagine, this has zero impact in my home. Absolutely not, not true at all. Now I hope that for you and I, as we have even heard this word in Acts 21, what I hope to to show to you in, in this entire passage is for us not to so quickly forget the mission at hand. If you're recently joining us or maybe new today, welcome, first of all. But secondly, we're jumping back into our series, Radical Renewal, where we are going through the entirety of the book of Acts. Several weeks back, we we talked about God's prevailing kingdom, God's prevailing word. The last time Jeff spoke, he talked about what does the poured out life look like? And today, what I want us to discover and discuss is God's prevailing mission. And we see this so, so plainly in the life of Paul as he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, Davon read verses 27 through 36, and uh, we did that for the sake of time. But let me draw your attention to my first point, which comes from verses 17 through 20, which is this, that Paul is affirmed. We see Paul's affirmation, especially by the church in Jerusalem. Look at what it says here in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. That's the brother of Jesus, one of the leaders of the church there. And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now we have to put a quick bookmark here because we have to revisit the previous verses and the previous chapters. And what happened in those verses Well, Paul is completing his third missionary journey out in Ephesus, out in Galatia, out in Asia Minor. And he gets a vision, he gets a call to come back to Jerusalem. And as he's relaying this message back to his brothers and sisters at church in Ephesus, they say, no, you cannot go because you will be arrested, you will be persecuted, who knows, you may even die. But Paul says, no, I must go. This is the calling. This is the calling to which God has called me to. And so when he arrives on the scene in Jerusalem, you can imagine how heavy his heart must feel. He's glad to be back with these brothers, yes, but he's also got to be incredibly terrified as to what is about to happen. And so when we see here in verse 17, when he comes to Jerusalem, the brothers, they received us gladly. How many of us have been in a situation where we have received and have experienced heaviness in life and sorrow, and how sweet and how refreshing a kind word and a smile and a hug can be. Look at verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified God. You have to remember, Paul knew that his very mission put him at odds with the majority of Jewish people throughout that entire region. Paul's very purpose in life, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, was seen as perverse, as wicked, as a watering down of the gospel or the the news about God, the law. Paul knew this but he also saw incredible fruit on his journeys, did he not? He did. And so when he comes back to Jerusalem, knowing what he knows about this vision, about what is about to happen to him, and he finds a glad reception from these leaders in the church, how it must have encouraged his heart. I'm absolutely certain all of us in this room at one time or another have experienced what it is like to feel incredibly down And to have a mate, a friend, a partner, come up to you and put their arm around you and say, hey, stop it, we can do this, you can do this. The power of an affirmation is incredibly strong. You may have seen uh, the video that we're about to watch, but I figured it would be fitting for us to watch this as a brief little video about affirmation. What you may have missed in this little clip is the reason why that one little boy was crying. He said, I'm not fast enough, I'm not strong enough. And his teammate rushes over and says, no, you are a brilliant rugby player, he says. What kind of tails off there in the very end bit of it is says, come in now, give me a hug. Man. I remember when I first saw this, I texted it immediately to my wife and I said, this is how I want my kids to be. This is how I want my daughter to be on the soccer pitch. And this is how we ought to be as fellow ambassadors in God's kingdom. He says, listen to me, trust me, look at me, Bob. He says, I'm the shortest kid here and it doesn't matter if you're short, if you're young, you're tall or you're fat, you are brilliant, You are insane, do you understand that? Now give me a hug. Paul was coming off of this journey, battered, beaten, literally, knowing what he was about to expect. That is, his arrest, his trial, him being shipped all the way to Rome, and his eventual death. And what do we see in these first few verses? But Paul is affirmed. What does that say for us? What does that teach us? I think it teaches us that we need to one, we need to remember our calling. This is our application. As we see Paul being affirmed here, we need to remember our calling. Because remember, at any point in this journey from Miletus and at the end of Acts 20, he still had to travel for seven days, in fact, two weeks. He had to travel for two weeks to get to Jerusalem. He could have stopped at any of those port cities. He could have stopped in Caesarea. He could have stopped in any of these cities and said, you know what? This is too much. The calling is too heavy. The price is too costly. I'm out. End of the book of Acts. No, that is not what happens. He goes on, he goes forward, and what does he find in Jerusalem waiting for him? We're gonna find a mob. But before that, what does he receive? But encouragement and affirmation from the brothers, from the church leaders. Remember your calling. Because good news is not simply just good news whenever it's circumstantially good. Now all you grammar fiends out there are going to cringe at this next sentence. Wouldn't the goodest good news be good regardless of the circumstance? It would be. That's the gospel. And that's the calling to which Paul has been called. And I believe if you yourself are a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, that is your calling as well, to bring the good news to those who do not know it. Remember your calling. Paul was very aware of this. Remember, again, immediately he knew because in in Ephesus or with the Ephesian elders, he says this in Acts 21. What are you doing weeping? breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul knew his calling. And not only in the heat of the moment, he knew this at his very conversion in Acts chapter nine. The Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, So, for he, Saul, who will be later known as Paul, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to do what? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake or for the sake of my name. If his calling and his missionary journey started this way, Again, at any moment, Paul could have said, I'm out, I'm done. Not for me. Not true. He progresses and he moves forward. Remember, you're calling church. Secondly, we see Paul acquiesce. As we follow this narrative, we see that Paul obliges the Jerusalem leaders. Verses 20b through 26 says this. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have not, who have believed, they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. What do we see here in these verses? Right, if Paul has already been affirmed by the leaders of the church, why must he then follow some kind of ceremonial custom or tradition? Was Paul just willy-nilly compromising with these leaders and, and just following whatever they told him to do. I don't believe so. I think what Paul is doing here is absolutely strategic, and he says, you know what, you're right. Paul himself later says, you know what, I, whether I follow the law or whether I obey the righteous requirements of the law or not or, be, or uh, eat food at a sacrifice to idols, what, that doesn't matter. What matters is the heart. What matters is this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. I'll reference this later, but he says, I become all things to some that I might win them. Even though Paul already had the right hand of fellowship with these church leaders, these church leaders and their wisdom said, Paul, you're about to walk into a minefield. Let's put on some bomb gear. Let's get you prepared. These Jews, they're gonna criticize you for turning people away from the Mosaic law. So let's show them that you are not above the law. Let's let's show them that you are actually, can abide by the Mosaic law. So let's go into the temple. Why don't you pay the expenses of of these men who are under this vow and show that you are actually also a good Jew. You may recall these words in Philippians three. I won't have it on the screen. You can just jot a note down. But Paul, when he was criticized about his Jewishness or his heritage, he says this in Philippians 3. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, that's what I was. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If you want me to follow some rule, I'll do it because this has no bearing on the gospel. Now, I will not compromise what I will do, but this this is secondary, this is tertiary, this is below that, I will do it, I will do it. Because this is his attitude, remember his calling. Whatever I had gained, verse seven of Philippians three, I count it a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see that? You hear that? What is most tantamount to Paul is Christ. And this ceremony, this ritual is not something that obstructs Christ. He will just do it. I will acquiesce, Paul says. And remember, the Jewish leaders or the Jerusalem leaders of the church were not doing this because they wanted to show Paul as a good Jew. No, they were trying to protect him. They were worried about him. But Paul kept his calling very, very present. And he was dedicated to this mission. Notice something here. And you'll notice it throughout the rest of our time today. We don't see any words of Paul recorded in this passage outside of from the very beginning until next week when Bob preaches. I think that's fascinating. After he relays the message of the, of the, 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 the third missionary journey, the, the work of the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul is silent. Luke doesn't make any commentary on what Paul says. Even when he's arrested, even when he's accused, Paul is silent. They were in unity together, the leaders were, and Paul. And it's all so matter of fact. I wonder what situations in life you find yourself in when you're in disagreement with people, especially when you're in disagreement with brothers and sisters. All right, now we're a long ways away from Thanksgiving and from maybe like a big family gathering, right? And, and maybe even as I say that, you are automatically just like, uh-oh, gotta get ready. Gotta mentally prepare myself for getting the family together. That's not a commentary on my own family, and I'm not accusing you of having disunity in yours, but that's the common trope, right? When was the last time you were in some kind of disapproval with brothers? So I immediately think not about a, a family gathering, I think about all the nights in college after any event and all of our friends go outside of whatever meeting place and then we say, hey, you guys hungry? Yes. All right, where are we going to go eat? And we would literally sit there for 45 minutes to an hour and a half. I timed it. I used to time it because we would go back and forth. Well, let's go here. No, I don't wanna go there. I was just there a couple days ago. Let's go somewhere else. No, I don't wanna go there because this person, blah, 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 and I'm not really feeling this. I'm not really feeling that. And we just go back and forth. Then we start talking about like other things. And then I just keep on looking at my clock. Guys, my stomach is not any fuller. Let's go eat. And then we decide, hey, you know what? Let's go get, I don't know, let's get hamburgers. I was like, all right, finally, we made a decision. Now, where are we going to go to get hamburgers? And he's just like, oh, here we go. I just want to eat. Come on, guys. And I just got to a point where I was so fed up, right? You notice that little pun. I was so hungry that I was fed up. And I would just go. I'd say, I'm going to go here. If you want to come, great. If not, so be it. I'll eat by myself for all I care. I wish we had some modicum of humility in those moments. I think we would have averted a lot of, uh, of uh, discontent and disunity in our friend group. But I love these brothers and these sisters. And so there was a moment, a lot of times, when I would just stop and say, you know what? We can argue about this. We can disagree about where we're gonna go. I'll go wherever you guys wanna go if that means we're going to get to where we need to go. A lot of us, when we think about humility, or we think even about hardship, or think about our calling, we immediately do a cost-benefit analysis. If I do this, will I find any return on my investment? If I'm humble, will I get anything for it? Which by definition means that you don't have the right idea of humility. Are we okay? We're acquiescing, are we okay with submitting? And I don't mean against your conscience or against your convictions, but what I mean is to those scruples, to those secondary things, to those tertiary things. Maybe the broader question is this, does your worldview allow for you to step down or must you always be on top? Paul says, you know what, the mission at hand is far greater than my own preference. So let's go to this temple. So our application from this is to remember our mission. Remember your mission, Christian. Remember why you are here. Remember why we gather in this way to worship. Remember why we submit ourselves even to God's word. If our calling is our destination, then our mission is our vehicle to get there. It's great for us to say, this is where I'm going to go. But if you just sit and do nothing, what good is that? Get up, go. 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 23 says this. This is what I referenced earlier. For though, Paul says, I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win to Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Why? That I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why do we do this? I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Notice what he says. He doesn't say so that I can have its blessings. No, that I may share with them to the very recipients of this gospel message. I want to share with them. It's not just about me. It's about them. It's about God. Christian, remember your mission. Thirdly, and this is where Things get heated, and the rest of the book of Acts will fly because it is jam-packed with action. We see Paul accused, verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, okay, not the ones in Jerusalem, they actually came and hunted Paul down. Seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place moreover he even brought Greeks into the temple he had defiled this holy place for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together they seized Paul they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut Paul is accused he's accused There's no merit to this accusation. Notice the length to which Paul's enemies and enemies of the gospel go to get Paul out and to get rid of Paul. They make up a story. They traveled hundreds of miles over many, many days to get rid of this man. And they even make something up about bringing an Ephesian into the temple courts which Paul did not do. How many of us fall into this kind of mob mentality? And let's not be mistaken, this is a Jewish mob. Just as we saw in Acts 19 and 20 with the riot in Ephesus, we are now seeing a riot here in Jerusalem. Their worries and their concerns are exactly the same. You have defiled this temple. You have defiled this place. You are taking away everything of ours. The Ephesians said it of uh, Artemis. The Jerusalemites, or the Judeans rather, they're saying it of our Mosaic law. This is our idol. This is our everything and you're taking it away from us? How dare you? We're going to kill you. The Jews were upset. This makes me think, strangely, about my dog. Now, my dog's name is Boba, like the tea, not the Fet. He's still very much a puppy in a lot of ways. And whenever anything that was on a counter is on the ground, I immediately accuse him. Boba, what did you do? What did you do? And thankfully, there's someone in the family, namely my daughter, who's always coming to his defense. Like he, just like we saw earlier, she's an affirmer of Boba. Whether or not he actually dropped this item from the counter, I don't know. But I know my first instinct was, it's his fault. I need to blame someone. Something's wrong, blame the dog. Something's missing, blame the dog, right? It hasn't rained in several weeks, blame the dog, right? Smells in his house, blame the dog. Can't find my shoe, blame the dog, whatever it is. Blame the dog, blame the dog. I accuse him, I accuse him, I accuse him. I recognize this is the sinful condition of my own heart. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Jews would be so quick to accuse Paul because he was taking away everything of theirs, their entire identity, which was wrapped up in the Mosaic law. Paul was saying, this is insufficient. You need Christ. You must turn to Christ and instead of being stirred up to run to God, what do they do? They stir one another up into a riotous mob and they pull him out of the city. Not to slap him on the wrist and say, don't you do that again. No, come here. No, they take him out of the city to kill him. Remember for you, just as Paul, I'm sure, remembered, we have an advocate. Paul had an advocate. Remember those verses that I read earlier in Acts 9? The Lord said to him, right at his conversion, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, God says, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, God will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of God's name. And Paul reiterates this right before he arrives in Jerusalem in Acts 21. And he says to the Ephesian elders, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I know it's gonna be hard, Paul says. But then this is what he says. I am ready. I am ready. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. Paul was convicted. He knew that he had an advocate in Jesus, his Lord. Do you know this? How often do you consider this? Whether it be something serious and monumental like Paul's or even in the little. You might not see yourself in this story, but I guarantee if you, if you stop and you think, you feel accosted on every front. You know why? Because we have an enemy who accuses, who comes to lie, to seat, to steal, to cheat, and to kill and destroy. He is known as the accuser. That is what Satan means. The devil is an accuser, and he will lie to throw you off course, to disrupt your foundation. And a lot of times we draw our attention to that and say, woe is me, instead of looking to our advocate in the courtroom and say, I've got someone who's got my back, who, has my, who is on my side, he is Jesus, he is my advocate. Again, notice, Paul doesn't say a word when these accusations are made. He lets it all happen. And I think the only thing that would allow him to do this is because he had this conviction that Christ was his advocate. Lastly, these final verses of chapter 21, we see Paul arrested Paul is arrested, starting in verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, that is, the Jews to kill Paul, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. That's shorthand for saying Jerusalem is run over, there's a riot, there's a mob, there's protests, there's something going on. It is not good. um, and as they were seeking to kill him, the word came, the tribune, that is a, a Roman leader over Roman soldiers. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Now some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks and when he came to the steps he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed away followed crying out away with him no ifs ands or buts about it the jews were upset and rescue comes from the most unlikely of places it comes from the hands of the very oppressors of the jews the romans Notice that he finds salvation momentarily by being imprisoned. Paul is rescued by this Roman guard in order for this gospel to go forward. Even amongst the Jews, God uses Gentiles to save Paul. That is irony of all ironies. Rescue for Paul looks like an arrest. It looks like imprisonment. It looks like being bound up in shackles. Inconceivable rescue. Now let's take for a second and think about what were to happen if Paul were to be killed by this Jewish mob in this moment? Would Paul still be seen as a a hero in the early church? Absolutely. But if Paul were killed, we wouldn't have any writings of Paul post his trial and imprisonment. No Ephesians, no Philippians, no Colossians, no Philemon, no Titus, no 1 Timothy, nor 2 Timothy. He would have no opportunity to testify before the very crowd that wanted to kill him. And this is what Bob will preach on next week. No opportunity to address the very Sanhedrin, the very leaders of the law. No opportunity to testify before Felix, the governor of Judea, or Festus, who replaces Felix as governor, or Agrippa, who is king over the entire region. If Paul were killed there in Jerusalem, no opportunity to go to Rome, the very seat of civilization and vast influence throughout the empire. God's prevailing mission meant that Paul would have to suffer But this is not what I want to give you as an application from this sermon, that you must go and suffer. Rather, who are you looking to? And what kind of rescue are you looking for? Rescue from the circumstance or rescue from the brokenness and the pain and the hurt of this world? Our application here is to remember Christ, who is our rescuer In some ways, we see this Roman tribune as a source of salvation. But let's not be fooled. Who the true rescuer is, it is Jesus Christ himself. Again, Acts 21. What is it that Paul says before he even arrives on the scene in Jerusalem? He says, What are you doing? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name of our Lord Jesus. Is that our attitude? Is that our disposition? And when you see this presently, here, locally, or even globally, will your response be like that of Luke and his companions where they said, let the will of the Lord be done. I think we would be remiss if we ended our time and not draw the comparison or the similarities between Paul's accusation and arrest and Jesus's accusation and arrest. Notice it, right? Triumphal entry into the city. Paul is received into the fellowship. Jesus comes in literally on palm branches, received as a king. Paul goes into the temple to ceremonially cleanse and and ritualize himself. Jesus does the same thing. He goes into the temple, and he sees that it's unclean, and he flips over the tables. And then we see this accusation from the mob ending almost the same way, away with him. With Jesus, they said, give us Barabbas, give us the criminal. We'd rather have him. And so likewise, we see what the Jews here with Paul, away with him, let's just kill him. We are to be a people who obey God's prevailing mission, not because Paul modeled it, but because Jesus Christ modeled it for us. Certainly we can learn much from Paul, but Paul himself would say, look not to me, but look to Christ. Let's follow in those footsteps. Let's be a people who would say, I'm going to hold fast to the anchor because my anchor who is Jesus, he will never be removed, amen. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, we ask, we implore with you that you would steady our hearts and our feet on you, the anchor of our lives. So whether we experience persecution or hardship in this world, God, remind us that you are our advocate, that you are our rescuer, that you are calling us to a mission and you will accomplish this and we get to play a small part in it, Lord. And as we go, would we be faithful to say, Christ, you are my anchor. You are my everything. Lead and guide, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.